going to have two Bible readings today. The first one is in Isaiah and the second one's in Luke. thought just came to my mind, it's a little bit of deviation, but um, Lucy follows um, Clint on, or sees him on Instagram and Clint was seen, has a picture of him riding a horse in snow. <laughs> a bit different to our summer. Anybody follow Clint on Instagram? Oh, there's a couple. Right, eh? There you go. Isaiah chapter 42, 1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people, and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. We'll move over to Luke chapter 9. Twenty-eight through to thirty-six. Luke chapter nine. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he, was, what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. May God give us understanding.
Let's get our Bibles open at Luke chapter 9, and I'll open this time with prayer. Heavenly Father, we help. We need your help to see what we need to see. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you'd help us to see Jesus. Lord, please help us to hear, help us not to be blind, help us to acknowledge who he is and to give him all the glory and praise. And Lord, we thank you again that he is the one by, by whom and through whom we can be saved. And so we ask you now to help us. May your spirit work within us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at our passage this morning, we really want to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? If I was to ask you, who is Jesus? Is he just someone you've heard of? Is Jesus just a man? Is Jesus a wise man? Is Jesus a clever man? Is Jesus someone just relegated to the past, someone from history? And I say that to people who acknowledge Jesus as well. Because it's quite easy for us to go to church, attend church, but we live as if Jesus is just someone from the past. He's just a man of history. Or we live as if Jesus is someone dressed in some daggy clothes, dusty clothes, walking dusty roads in Galilee, and that's all we can think or imagine Jesus. When you think about Jesus, who is he? Because as we begin a new year, who's going to order your life? How will you determine your priorities? How will you know what's right and wrong? Who will you listen to? Maybe who are you listening to? Because God wants us to listen to Jesus. We need to acknowledge who Jesus is. Because if we acknowledge who Jesus is, we will listen. Because once we know who Jesus is, it changes everything. Are you listening to Jesus? And if you go to church, if you call yourself a Christian, that question still applies. Are you listening to him or do you just acknowledge him? And it goes no further. Because when we ask to work out who Jesus is and put our trust in him, God doesn't just have us grasp vague, wafting spiritual ideas. He takes us to history, to concrete things that have happened. And one of the writers that God has given to us is Luke and we see in verse 28 that Luke writes as a story and he says, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Luke's recording the things that Jesus said and did and where he did them. That is where our faith is taken. We're called to come and watch and listen and weigh up who Jesus is. If you turn back to the very first verses of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, he tells us very clearly what he's doing. The opening four verses of Luke chapter 1. He writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, here it is, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Today, we're going to be looking at what's called the transfiguration. You and I, we are like Theophilus and even like Luke. We weren't there. We weren't present. But Luke has gone and done a thorough investigation. He's gone to speak to the eyewitnesses. He's gone to check the history and he's gone to the first-hand recorders and the, those of the account 
and he's spoken with them. And here we have him recording the testimonies, testimonies of those who were there and God's placed it in the Bible. Don't have to turn to 2 Peter, but this is what Peter himself will write later after this event in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. What we're about to hear about this morning aren't all stories. Trusting in Jesus isn't a fable. It's fact. It's history. Peter writes that when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. This isn't fiction. I was there. We were there. And here he's going to recount, as he does there in his letter, the transfiguration. Our faith is grounded in the historical life of Jesus. God doesn't have us hold on to these random, detached spiritual sayings. It's history. And we listen to the history, the record that we can stand and watch and listen and weigh it up. And Luke says about eight days after, interestingly, if you looked at Matthew and Mark's account, it says there was a period of six days but all that would simply seem to be happening is Matthew and Mark have referred to the six days in between, whereas Luke has considered the day on which the sayings were said and the day of the transfiguration, which gets to eight. And so here we have on the eighth day, the transfiguration taking place after Jesus had made the sayings, if you glance up in the previous part of Luke chapter nine. And we, Peter wants us and Paul, Paul sorry, Luke wants us to also know that we can trust this because it's a reliable evidence. It's not just a coincidence that Jesus took three people, Peter, John, and James with him. Peter, that's Simon Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. The books of the law and Deuteronomy, for instance, says for a verdict to be taken seriously about someone, you can't just go on what one person says. You need two or three witnesses. Once you have two to three witnesses, you can then make a credible assessment. And here we have something that's supernatural taking place. And God provides us with three witnesses. And so now let's consider the transfiguration. And as we see, and I pray that you will see that Jesus, we've just considered Christmas, the man who was born as a boy in Bethlehem, who would later grow up as a man in Nazareth, it's not just a man, but he is worthy for you and for me to give him all glory and honor. He is worthy for you and I to worship him and to listen to him. And so verse 29, this extraordinary event begins. They went up on the mountain. The intention was to pray. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The transfiguration, that word means to change or transform. The word Matthew and Mark use is the word metamorphosis. Jesus changed somehow. As he prayed, something radical and supernatural occurred, and the eyewitnesses said they saw his face change. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. Imagine looking at the sun. I went walking this morning and you, you can't look at the sun for long. Imagine looking at the sun and then it put Jesus there. 
His face shone like the sun in intense brightness, too much to bear. The eyewitnesses then say his clothing changed. And not just to white as we know it, but to a white that we've never comprehended really. Luke says it was a dazzling white. Matthew says it was as white as light. Mark says it was so white, it was a white beyond what you can ever try and attain, however much bleach or washing or soap you want to use. It was a supernatural white, pure, unadulterated, heavenly whiteness. Jesus, who had come from heaven to earth, who had dwelt with God from eternity, God who dwells in unapproachable light, had come to earth as a man. As the carol says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. They saw who Jesus was for a moment, just a glimpse. For a brief moment, the veil, the Father allowed the veil to be lifted. And what had been hidden from their earthly eyes was made plain. Peter, James and John saw the glory of Christ, his divinity. But they still only caught a glimpse of the Bible says that as we are now, we couldn't cope with seeing God in all his glory. And yet God just lifted the veil a bit and it was wonderful. But one day we shall be made like him and we shall see him as he is. Jesus' glory had been hidden because he had come to accomplish something. But that glory would be made plain after his death and resurrection. Do you live as if Jesus is still in the past? Do you live as if Jesus is just no one? Do you live with a Jesus that's just part of the routine of doing church each week? Or do you acknowledge Jesus who shines in glory brighter than the noonday sun, who's worthy of glory and honour and power? Acknowledge him like that and you'll give him glory. But here we see in verse 30, if you want to give Jesus glory, you need to acknowledge that he's number one. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. When Jesus was transfigured, he was not alone. Moses and Elijah were with him. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? We presume either God revealed it to them or as they listened in, they heard who these people were. But in their inferior glory, they were still glorious next to Jesus. Christ outshone them, but they were still wonderful. And we're reminded again that when we die, that's not the end of the saints. We leave our earthly body behind, but just as Jesus says, God is God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're alive today. Elijah and Moses were alive. And you and I too, as Paul says, if we die, we'll leave these earthly bodies behind, but we'll be with the Lord in in a glorious place. And they were with him. Why Moses and Elijah? It seems commonly acknowledged. That's because Moses represents the law, the opening part of the Bible. And Elijah is representative of the prophets. Two great men that God used, Moses and Elijah. And here they are testifying that Jesus is who he is. They're talking with him. They're in agreement with him. The rebellious religious Jewish leaders were constantly trying to drive a wedge 
between Jesus and Moses, between Jesus and the prophets. But here they see that Jesus, Moses and the prophets are in one agreement. There is no wedge between them. The transfiguration makes it clear there's no division. Jesus, rather, is the fulfillment of all that the law and all that the prophets point to. They're talking about his departure. Moses, this is Jesus. This is all that I wrote about. Elijah and the prophets, this is all that we predicted. And Jesus had come to fulfill them. Do you read your Bible rightly? If we read the Bible rightly, it'll take us to Jesus from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Moses was writing about Jesus and pointing to Jesus. The prophets were pointing to Jesus. Make Jesus the number one of the Bible, the supreme one, the preeminent one, and you're reading the Bible rightly. He is the one that everyone's pointing to. He doesn't stand next to them. They're pointing to him. He's over all of them. And here we see what they were talking about. And show that the centrality of the cross. They spoke of his departure, the words literally exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The departure. The eyewitnesses heard this conversation. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. They were witnessing this most extraordinary, supernatural, wonderful thing, but Jesus says, I've got to go down the hill and I've got to get back to Jerusalem. You look at verse 22 of Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what Moses wrote about. That's what the prophets wrote about. That's what Jesus came to do. That is the work, the departure, his death, his exodus from this life to leave behind that had to happen down in Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to crush the serpent, to be the Passover lamb, to have his hands and feet pierced, to be the lamb who was led to the slaughter, to be the place of refuge from the wrath of God. Jesus was going to fulfill all those things that the Old Testament law and prophets were pointing to. So never get the idea that Jesus was somehow dragged to the cross or Jesus went there unwillingly. He was there talking with Moses and Elijah saying, this is what I've come to do. Luke will shortly write that he set his face like a flint upon Jerusalem. I have to go there. That's my mission. That's my work. Yet he had no need to die. He's the glorious one. He's shone with that pure, unadulterated light in their presence. The glorious son of God, veiled in human flesh without sin. Yet he committed himself, he made it his work to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. He went to work the exodus that if we share in it, we will share in an exodus that takes us from death to life, from sin to righteousness. Want to bring glory to Jesus? Make the cross central. Want to bring glory to Jesus? Acknowledge his divinity. Make the glory... Want to give glory to Jesus? Make him preeminent in everything. But then Peter has something to interject. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But then these important words, not knowing what he had said. Peter thought he had a great idea, but it was a bad idea. When Peter saw, well, Peter, James and John all saw Jesus, it was glorious. Even though it fell short of the glories that one day we will see. Have a read of Psalm 27 sometime today, but here's verse 4. This is David. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Peter hadn't seen Christ in all his beauty, but he had caught but a glimpse of the glory and beauty of Christ and it captivated him. It was only a snippet and he didn't want to leave it. He wanted it to stay. He wanted to build these three shelters, but first he didn't realize that Jesus wasn't on a par with Moses and Elijah. You don't just build three little shacks and put Jesus as one next to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the son of God. He doesn't dwell in houses made of human hands. Peter hadn't fully grasped as we are grasping because we know how this ends and we're going to see how it ends shortly, who Jesus was. Yes, Jesus was great, but he hadn't understood fully. And second, we see that it was foolish because he hadn't understood the importance of the cross. It would be tragic if Jesus was still on that mountain with Peter, James and John and three shacks because he wouldn't have got to Jerusalem. Sins would not have been paid for. Peter, in his ignorance, was saying something terrible. He was putting something in between Jesus and the cross. No, Jesus must leave this mountain and go and die for sins. And third, it is, you can understand where he's coming from, that the selfishness, because God doesn't intend that wonder to just be for Peter, James and John. Jesus had come to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you have put your trust in Jesus today, you are part of that people. Jesus wants you to share in that wonder and glory and joy. That wasn't just for them. That was for all of us to enter into together. Jesus went to the cross so one day you and I can enter into his glorious presence with great joy. Sometimes you might be tempted to think that seeing Christ in his glory and spending eternity and being in front of Jesus might be a bit strange. I've thought that. What's it going to actually be like? Jesus will just be different somehow. But no, it's made quite clear it's going to be wonderful. Gazing upon Christ in all his glory will enthrall us and captivate us for eternity. It'll never diminish. Seeing Christ will be glorious. What David longed for, we'll all experience together. Don't let anything in this life snatch that from you. Don't let anything take away from being in the presence of Christ for eternity. Don't let that, don't exchange it, don't swap it. Jesus says he's the pearl of great price. Sell everything, give everything to have Jesus. He's the precious one. Because one day, don't miss it. If you come to Jesus, you have everything and you will have joy everlasting in his presence. 
So Peter hadn't grasped these things, but how gracious God is. Peter's called up in this moment, but then God the Father steps in and sort of sobers him up. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Just as the presence of God had descended upon Sinai in a cloud, just as the presence of God had filled the temple with the cloud, here Peter, James and John are with Jesus and the cloud descends, but not over them. They become afraid for the, they enter the cloud. The cloud envelops them. And they are caught up in the cloud. In a sense, I think God snapped them out of their spiritual euphoria. They're all captivated by this glorious sight. Peter's coming up with not very good ideas and God steps in. Wake up. And speaks. I think there is a principle for us. We must never allow our spiritual fervor or zeal overcome the word some people can become so excited about jesus so excited about an experience of jesus that they start shaping their spiritual understanding around their experience but then we start making foolish decisions like peter maybe you've had them too you chat with someone who's wonderfully excited about jesus but as they start talking so that's in your head that's not in the bible that's not quite right they're so caught up in their excitement about Jesus. Our zeal must be shaped and temp tempted, tempered by the word. We've got to bring it back to the word and God speaks. And that voice just made it very clear. This is my son. These eyewitnesses heard this. They've seen things and now they're hearing things. God speaks, my chosen one, listen to him. That was the defining moment for Peter. It actually wasn't Christ in all his brilliance of dazzling white that snapped him into sort of recognizing what was going on. It was when God spoke. For he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, for he received honor and glory. You get, there's a certain glory when you look at Christ and you see him in all his dazzling brilliance. But then there's another whole glory and honor that comes when God the Father himself speaks and declares something about him. That takes it, there's no question about this now. This is absolutely who he is. He says, he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. God spoke and made it very plain why Jesus was transfigured as he was. He was the eternal son of God, begotten, not made. God of very God. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because when Jesus claimed God is his father, they sought to kill him because in calling God his father, Jesus was making himself equal with God. 
And yet God himself testifies and speaks and says, this is my son. He's God. Listen to him. The son that they were following, that would go and accomplish his mission on the cross in Jerusalem, was God the son, equal with God, veiled in human flesh. That elevates Jesus above everyone and everything. We can see glorious sights, we can see angelic beings, and we can come to all sorts of conclusions, but God spoke and said, Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And that's the wonder, that he is the one who would go and die on a cross in Jerusalem for sinners like you and me, the eternal Son of God. He is the one through whom God would reconcile the world and redeem sinners. And he's the chosen one. He's the Christ. He's the king. He's the one who will rule forevermore over all the earth. All the prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus. So here's the, the clincher or the lasting application because we can acknowledge these things because Jesus in the Bible make clear the devil acknowledges these things. The devil knows who Jesus is better than most people, if not all of us to some degree. But then this is what God says. This is the application from God's voice himself. This is my chosen one. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Moses had gone. Elijah had gone. Everything was pointing to Jesus. He is the voice. He's the one we listen to. Moses takes us to Jesus. The prophets take us to Jesus. He is our master. He is our teacher. He is the king on the throne. Listen to him. If someone says, or if a parent says to their child, listen to me, it's not just to convey information. You're really saying, please do what I'm asking you to do. When God says, listen to him, he's saying, obey him. Whatever Jesus says, put it into practice. In the past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he speaks to us by his son. John the Baptist made it clear, he must diminish, Christ must become more. Moses must diminish, Elijah must diminish, Christ must become more. Do you listen to him? Because there's no way of sharing in Christ if we don't listen to him. We share in him by listening to him. That's how we exercise our faith. And so I pray if you're someone who still doesn't see Jesus clearly as Peter didn't at first, that as God helped Peter, that God might help you too to see Jesus clearly so that your ears would get unblocked and you would listen, start listening to him. Because then you will share in that exodus from sin and from death and from having to go to hell. You'll share an eternal life, share in the life that he worked through rising from the dead. If you want to honor Jesus, you've got to listen to him. You've got to read the Bible and put it into practice. We don't honor Jesus by acknowledging he's the son of God. We acknowledge Jesus by living the reality of him being the son of God in our life out. 
And this sort of takes us full circle. Are we just rolling with church? If I was to, if you were to share the things that you listen to about Jesus, would it go beyond what maybe you heard at Sunday school or five years ago or 10 years ago? Or are you coming to the word to hear what Jesus says? So as to keep listening, wanting to listen. God has given us Jesus, the word, and God has given us his word. Ignorance is not a plea. We want to listen. I want to spend time in the word and hear what Jesus has to say. And it will change our life. God gives us the Holy Spirit who helps apply that word. And anyone who would be a pastor or a pastor teacher, woe to you if you speak anything more than what Jesus says. Because he is the shepherd. God has said, listen to the shepherd. The under shepherds are to say no more or no less than what the shepherd says. Probably more in our circles. We don't wrestle so much with past shepherds or pastor teachers saying more than what he says, but we might struggle a bit with pastor teachers saying less than what he says. We preach the whole counsel of God, not just some of it. The only way you can be a pastor teacher is to be a disciple. And that's the sayings that Jesus has just before this. We need to be a disciple. Which means we listen to him and put his words into practice. And finally, they didn't stay on the mountain. Praise God, Jesus descended that mountain and went to Jerusalem. He rose again on the third day, just as he said. And Jesus sent Peter, James and John, the eyewitnesses and all who heard their message out into the world that we might hear their testimony, that we might respond in faith to the history, to what's been recorded, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might have the hope of eternal life and that together with them one day we'll be gathered up on the heavenly Mount Zion and we shall gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in rapture and bliss forevermore, in purity and righteousness and gladness. Don't keep it to yourself. That's one of the things Jesus says. If we listen to him, tell others about the forgiveness of sins. If you're hearing it, respond to it. Go out into the world and tell them there's a place where we can have new life and a fresh start. And so meditate on these things today. Is the reality of who Jesus is impacting your life? Start with meditating on him. That you might see by grace through faith who Jesus is. And then meditate too. Like someone. Are your meditations leading to obedience, to living it out, to bearing the fruit? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for the revelation that you give us of Jesus. Lord, this day we want to give Jesus all glory, honor, and praise. Lord, please help us to humble ourselves before him. Lord, please diminish anything in our life that we are captivated by. Because there is nothing, nothing that comes close to seeing Christ in his glory. So, Father, please set in our hearts the hope of what is to come the joy and the gladness of being in your glorious presence, that we might live wisely. 
and grant us all the grace that we need to hear Jesus, to listen to him, and to build our lives wisely. In his name we pray.